Well, good morning. He is risen. Wow, that was exciting, isn't it, man, to celebrate and sing and worship our risen Savior and King. Man, what a great day. But you know, as I was thinking this week, um, it's, a, it's a, an incredible day of celebration for us. But standing on this side of Easter, it's easy for us to kind of take it for granted, isn't it? I mean, just because we've had like 2,000 years to hear the story and to process this story and to kind of wrap our minds around it, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we look at it and we're like, dead person coming back to life, that doesn't happen. But for, re- for Jesus, we're like, okay, it's a miracle. He did miracles. We can get our minds around it. But could you imagine what it would have been like for those first century disciples? For those that had been walking with Jesus, for those that had been going around with him, um, I, I imagine it would have been a little bit like a game of Jenga. Any Jenga players out there? How many of you would say I'm a Jenga expert? Any? Oh, well, man, I am not. Uh, what's your Jenga strategy? That's a good question. What's your strategy? strategy? Middle. Oh, you go the middle. Uh, anybody else say middle strategy? Anybody got a different strategy when you're playing Jenga? Play with young kids that aren't good. That's a, the best strategy that exists right there. I have to admit, I'm a, I'm a go for the bottom type guy. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you, you immediately take out those two and you see, okay, now we've created a little difficulty here. And then you just start attacking that right there. And you may think, what in the world does this silly game have to do with Easter? But as I thought about this, oh, ooh. Oh, I know you said start in the middle. I like the bottom though, because now when you start messing up here, things get dicey, right? But I think about the first century disciples and I have to wonder if what they were experiencing was a little bit like this game of Jenga. You know, as they, heard, as they grew up, good Jewish boys and girls, hearing the, the, the stories, the, the, you know, learning the law, hearing about the covenant and Abraham and Moses and the prophets and all this. And then they would meet this man who starts to challenge everything that they believed. And they, as he challenges their beliefs, it's kind of like removing these pieces. But what's interesting about Jesus is he didn't just destroy. He, he began to rebuild. He began to add on to. And he says incredibly or, uh, incredible things, extraordinary things. I mean, and you think about it, Look at that. Doesn't that make you a little nervous right there? Oh, there it goes. <laughs> See, that's what happens. But they, they knew things like this. They knew don't murder. But then this guy comes on the scene. He's like, not just don't murder, but he's just like, if you think about hating someone, that's as bad as murder. Oh, man. You know? And he said things like, you know, don't just be faithful to your spouse, but if you look lustfully with like an intent to want somebody else sexually, that's as bad as sleeping with them. And you think, wow, that really raised the bar. And he said crazy stuff like love your enemies, don't cheat people. He even said don't cheat the government, pay your taxes to Caesar, but also give to God so you know you're supporting the work of God in the world. And I have to imagine that it was kind of like this for the disciples. Pulling out those Jenga pieces of faith, breaking down what they had built their lives on, and beginning to really challenge their core beliefs in God and how God expected them to be. But, as I said, they got to see some pretty cool stuff. Jesus did some miracles. 
He healed people of sickness and disease. He saw him feed 5,000 people and then 4,000 people with just nothing. They were there when he spoke a word and he said, peace, be still. And this raging storm just stopped. It would have been incredible. And they saw him address spiritual powers, demons, and demon-possessed people. And they saw that even the powers of evil were no match for him. And just, you know, as they were reshuffling their Jenga pieces of faith, then the unexpected happened. When they thought things were going to be okay, when they thought they were building something that would last, he began to challenge even that. Because he said things to them like, you know what, I'm going to be killed. And they're like, no, you're not. But then they were there when he was arrested. They were there when he was tried. And he was, they were there when he was put on the cross and crucified. And in that moment, everything that they had believed, all the rebuilding of faith, all the restacking of the blocks would have been there and then were just destroyed, gone in that moment. I'm sure they felt defeated. They felt desperate. They were in denial, despair, because everything that they had built back up was now gone. And even on this side of the erection, maybe you can identify with that part of the story. Maybe you hear that. Maybe you grew up in faith. You followed Jesus. You've religiously attended church. You've worked hard to, you know, have that quiet time and spend time with God every day and read your Bible and pray. And you've committed and you serve in the church and you give and all these things. But for some reason, when you think about your faith and believing in Jesus and following Jesus, you feel like the disciples a little bit that in the Jenga world of your faith that some of those pieces have been pulled out. You feel like it's a little shaky. Well, today we're kicking off a brand new series where over the next several weeks, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be looking at this idea of deconstruction, when faith shatters. Anybody heard that term before, deconstruction? Yeah? What, what comes to your mind when you hear that word deconstruction? My basement. <laughs> deconstruction, yes. If you go downstairs here in the church, it looks like a bomb went off because we are deconstructing the old kitchen. Fortunately, we're going to reconstruct the new, yes. What else comes to mind when you think of deconstruction? Somebody questioning their faith. What else? What was that? Losing your faith. Okay. Things crumbling. Yep, things falling down. Okay, now you don't have to answer this one out loud. Have you ever deconstructed something? Could be your faith, could be anything. A relationship, a job. You ever deconstructed in your life before? How was that feeling? When you went through that, how was that? Is anybody like, yeah, it was great, let's do that again? <laughs> I said, no one ever. It's frightening, isn't it? It's frightening, it's scary, it's terrifying, it's unsettling. It's like your whole entire world is just upside down and just like you could crumble at any moment. And I don't think this is anything too new, but I will say deconstruction is getting a lot of press today. I don't know if you guys read like Christian things, it's on social media, all these things. We're seeing high profile Christians, celebrity Christians, who are now making these bold statements walking away from faith. 
how they don't identify as a Christian anymore. For our purposes, we're going to talk about deconstruction to describe a crisis of Christian faith that leads to either a reevaluation of Christianity, which sometimes will take people to an abandonment of it, or sometimes to a reaffirmation of certain things. It's a questioning of faith. It's when you begin to see holes in your worldview, and it's the process of systemically dissecting and often rejecting beliefs that you grew up with. Sometimes, as I said, it can lead all the way even to atheism, and sometimes, though, it can lead to reconstruction. And I want to tell you right now that not all deconstruction is bad, and we're going to, over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about how it can be a positive thing. Even today, we'll see how it's positive. But I will say that for some of us, because I've deconstructed in my own life some of the things that I grew up with, you can end up with a faith that is stronger than before, but doesn't look much like what you came to the table with. So um, maybe you know somebody that's gone through this. Maybe somebody in your life right now is going through this. Or maybe you yourself are kind of in the midst of this right now. What do we do with this? The question is this. Is it possible for us to ask these hard and scary questions and maintain faith? Is it possible to see people of faith, maybe people that we've looked up to and admired, to see them fall in incredible ways and continue to follow Jesus? Can we experience abuse, spiritual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, even in the name of Jesus, and not throw in the towel? Because we even see that happening today. And with all of that's happening in the culture around us, the attacks on faith and morality, it makes us wonder, as I've read this week, one author put it, is Christian faith still viable in an age of unbelief? That's what we want to look at. That's what we want to consider. So the reason I wanted to begin today on Easter is not only because it's Easter, but because hopefully I want us to understand what the disciples went through. Because it took a bit of deconstruction for them to get to the place where they could start to rebuild. And so what I want you to see is that for the disciples, and maybe even for you, that a little deconstruction may be necessary. You see, think about where they were. As I said earlier, they started off good Jewish boys and girls following Jesus. They grew up learning the law, and they knew Abraham, and they knew the covenant, and they knew they were God's chosen people, and they knew all this. But they had to deconstruct that. They had to move beyond this Judaism. But they didn't land in the right place, because where they landed was more this nationalistic Messiah Jesus who was going to come and overthrow the Roman oppressors and make Israel great again and all that good stuff. And they were looking for that military might and power. And they had to deconstruct that because what they ended up seeing was this new kingdom bringing, suffering servant, dead and risen Jesus. And consider their reactions and their behavior going through deconstruction. These weren't people you'd look up to and go, well, they handled that well. <laughs> you'd look at these individuals and you'd go, wow, you guys, you failed miserably. Because once Jesus of cruci was crucified, where were they? They were gone. 
And, I'm, and I don't say that to be like, oh, they're terrible people. No, if I was there, I'd have been gone. This was cover your own rear end time because I don't want what happened to Jesus to happen to me. They're hiding behind locked doors, afraid of what might be coming, too afraid to attend Jesus's burial even. We'll let the women folk take care of that. Way to be strong, men. In that moment, you could say they had nothing left. No hope, lots of guilt and fear and shame. But then something changed. Something radically reoriented these individuals. Because when you look in the book of Acts, you don't see the same men and women that you see at the end of the Gospels. In fact, Acts chapter 17, verse 6, has one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it talks about these individuals, and they are described as individuals who are turning the world upside down. How do you go from cowering behind a locked door in fear to turning the world upside down? And I'm going to just tell you, part of it was because they were willing to ask the hard questions, and they were willing to do a little deconstruction of the faith that they had been given. What was that? What was it that led them to this? What were they deconstructing? What was it that radically transformed them? I'm just going to tell you one word, resurrection. Resurrection. That is the thing that reoriented their entire worldview, their entire existence. It became the foundation on which they built everything else. In fact, we see this in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. He's writing back. He's planted this church. He's writing back and forth. This is one screwed up church. Let me just tell you, he's having to correct a lot of stuff with them. And when he's writing to them, he's talking to them about that, the resurrection. And look at what he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. He writes this. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I, passed, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now, stop right there. What, in the, what is he talking about? He's obviously making a very bold statement. I mean, he's telling him, he says, this is the thing you stand on. This is the thing. This is the line in the sand for you. This is the thing that is unchangeable, immutable, that we, that we build everything else on. He says, it's what you take your stand on. This is it. What is that? We keep reading. For what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. What is first importance? That Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, and then to the twelve. And that, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Did you catch what Paul said there? Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, the foundation we build on is right theology. Believe the right thing, and that is your foundation. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, your foundation is religious experiences and activity. Do enough good things and that is your foundation. You will be secure. He doesn't say that. All these things, right theology, beliefs, 
Christian service, following God, spending time, building the right, all important. But all these things are secondary to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't say that our faith is built on a set of ideas or even good teaching or church attendance. Our faith is built on an event brought about by a real person, Jesus Christ. And just to bring this point home, to help us understand it more a little bit further in this chapter, look at what he continues to write. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is, what's that word? Can y'all read it? Useless. Oh, that's a pretty potent word, isn't it? If Christ has not been raised, I'm going home. Because what I'm doing right here is pointless. It's useless. And then he says, and so is your faith. More than that, there's more. If, it, if Christ has not been raised, we are then found to be false witnesses. We're nothing but a bunch of charlatans and liars and, and conspiracy theorists to believe if it didn't happen. He says, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? Futile. Useless, futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. Think about that. Paul says if the resurrection didn't happen, you are just playing games you're believing a lie. You're giving yourself to something that doesn't matter. And honestly, the rest of the world needs to look at you and just go, I feel sorry for you. I really feel bad for you. We're to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. What Paul is saying to those new Christ followers in the first century and what we preserve, this is so important for us. We want to erect all these tests. We want to build our Jenga tower based on a whole lot of stuff. These gates that we have to pass through in order to be a, quote, real follower of Jesus. But Paul breaks it down. I remember years ago, I was in a seminary class, and there's nothing greater than being in a seminary class with a bunch of young men who just want to prove their intellectual prowess to everybody else sitting in the class. It's a very encouraging environment to be in. The professor asked us, though, one day, he said, what is, it, what is necessary for someone to believe or to be saved, to become a Christ follower? What is necessary? And of course, like I said, it's just right... Well, 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 let me, let me tell you this, and let me tell you this. And I'm going to tell you, after about five minutes, there were a hundred words written on this whiteboard. Well, you got to believe in the Trinity. Well, you got to believe in, you know, what happened in the Garden of Eden. And you got to believe this, and you got to believe that. And I have to think that if Paul would have been there, Paul would have picked up the eraser. And he would have looked at some of the things that we'd written on that whiteboard, and he'd have gone, Trinity, that's important. Nope, not for this. He'd have probably looked at, you know, the Abrahamic covenant, messianic prophecies, heaven and hell, all erased. 
They're important. Don't get me wrong. But we have to put them in priority. Because the most important thing in what Paul is saying is that it all comes down to the resurrection. If it didn't happen, this is pointless, and Christianity shouldn't even exist. And we are wasting our time, and we're just playing games. But he says, but, and that's the big but, if it's true, it changes everything. The reality, the foundation of our faith. It's not all this other stuff. It's Jesus and the resurrection. In fact, sometimes we'll even go, it's the Bible. It's not. Our faith is not built on the Bible. In fact, a pastor I was seeing on Twitter this week said this. He says, the Christian faith doesn't rise and fall on the accuracy of 66 ancient documents. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. We're not people of the book. We're people of the person. We're people of Jesus. And what matters, that other stuff can fall into place and we can talk about it. It is important, but not if we don't take care of Jesus. Did you notice what Paul said, though? The implications are if there's no resurrection. What it means if Jesus really didn't. Yeah, it's pointless and it's futile, but there's more. What Paul is telling us is that we don't get the option to look at Jesus and say, well, you know, he didn't rise from the dead, but you know, he was a good moral teacher. No, he was a madman. He was a hoax. He was deluded out of his mind if he didn't rise from the dead. Why would we look at him and say, well, but I like the love your enemies part. But he said, kill me and I'll rise from the dead. That makes him a liar if the resurrection didn't happen. We don't get the option of just looking at Jesus and going, good moral teacher. He is either who he says he is or he's not. He is either the Messiah, the Savior, the risen one, or he's not. Paul removes that perspective. He's either a madman or he rose from the dead. And if he did, it changes everything. It validates everything Jesus taught. It shows us that this new kingdom that he came to bring about, this fulfillment of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the creation of this new covenant, it's a new promise, not just for a single group of people, but for you and me. It's a promise for us. And the resurrection continues to show that is real. And there's another implication, though, that Paul talks about. He says if the resurrection didn't happen, guess what? There's no victory over sin. There's no victory over death. There's no victory over the grave. There's no forgiveness. Paul says if the resurrection didn't happen, you are still in your sin, dead. Now think about this. The world has had plenty of dead saviors. Plenty. Plenty. Tons of men who come on the scene claiming to be the one, claiming to be the Messiah, the promised one who would save God's people. And you know what? If you go dig them up and you find their graves, guess what you're going to find? Bones. Guess what you find in that empty tomb? Nothing. Nothing. It is empty. That's why we call it the empty tomb. I was reading this week, somebody was talking about the rolled stone you know, the stone that was put there. Why was the stone moved? You know, in Scripture, it doesn't tell us that Jesus walked out. The stone wasn't moved so he could get out. The stone was moved so we could get in and see that it was empty. Isn't that amazing? Jesus didn't need the stone moved. We did. And we can't separate the death of Jesus from the resurrection of Jesus because it's in his death and resurrection that we have new life. 
that we have forgiveness of sin. Our sin has been defeated. We're made new. And that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that will grab us and raise us to new life. We saw that last weekend when we had this ba- the baptisms of three individuals. That is this beautiful picture. And Paul tells us, he says, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. What a beautiful picture of the resurrection that we have, that we experience. But if the resurrection didn't happen, that doesn't happen. And one more thing. If these two implications aren't enough, Paul says this, without the resurrection, there is no hope. There is no hope. But for Paul and the first century believers, the resurrection was a reality. That's a challenge for us though, right? Dead men don't come back to life. I mean, except on shows like The Walking Dead, right? You know? This is a challenge for us, and it's easy for us to look back and go to the first century again. You know, we're so much more intelligent. We're so much more sophisticated. We have much more science on our side. They were just gullible. But Paul says, no. You look at what these individuals experienced, and Paul lays it out. He says, look, Peter saw him. 500 people saw him. And he's not just trying to say, let me build an apologetic, a defense for Jesus rising from the dead. No. He's saying, look, this is, this is real. And you know some of the people who experienced it, so go ask them. Even Paul's own story of deconstruction, when you think about that, gives credibility to the resurrection. You guys know who Paul was? He was a Jew of Jews. He was, man, as religious as they come. So religious that when these fanatics of following Jesus started popping up, he says, we're going to we got to squash this. This is a problem. And he went around and arrested folks. And he was there when they stoned Stephen for believing in Jesus. You look at this man. What in the world would take this guy from that zealousness of that faith to get him to a place of dying for the one he used to torture? Theologian and author N.T. Wright, he says this. He says, Christianity, you see, isn't a set of ideas. It isn't a path of spirituality. It isn't a rule of life. It isn't a political agenda. It includes and indeed gives energy to all these things, but at its very heart, it is something different. It is good news about an event which has happened in the world, an event because of which the world can never be the same again. And those who believe it and live by it will, thank God, never be the same again either. Isn't that amazing? So as we begin this new series on deconstruction, we're going to continue to to break this down week after week. And what I want you to understand is that deconstruction, as I said earlier, I think is necessary for all of us. But it doesn't have to mean deconversion. It doesn't have to mean a walking away of the faith. After all, The disciples had to stop clinging to the Jesus they had known in the past in order to see the risen Christ. Right? Just a little deconstruction. And regardless of all the extras, the junk that we may have added to our faith, there may come a time where we need to strip all that away and get back down to the foundation to start restacking the blocks and remind ourselves of what really matters. And I want you to know that regardless 
of the questions and doubts you may have. Let's go back to Jesus. Let's go back to the resurrection. Let's build from there. And in this story of the first resurrection, I want you to find hope. And a Savior not looking to shout you down for what you're experiencing. But a Savior who's already there in the midst of your doubts and questions, ready to embrace you through it. Because, you know, I've mentioned earlier, the disciples, they didn't respond really well to that whole crucifixion thing. We saw despair. We saw denial. We saw doubt very clearly. But even in the denial for Peter, what did he find? He found forgiveness. And he found empowerment for the mission of God. Where Thomas heard his friends say, oh, we saw Jesus. And he goes, yeah, I'm not going to believe it till I see it myself. You see Jesus encountering Thomas and saying, go ahead, touch, feel. Brent would have probably been like, Thomas, get it together, man. And Jesus is just like, nope, if this is what you need. The doubts were welcomed and even encouraged to come to seek and to ask and to receive. And when there was despair, when these men and women thinking all was lost, that despair was met with hope. And what's amazing about all this, the denial, the doubt, the despair, all this is that Jesus was the one who initiated the response. He's the one that showed up, even coming through locked doors to meet them, even sometimes when they weren't looking for him. And that's the same Jesus that'll meet us, maybe even if we aren't looking for it. So where are you this morning? That's my question. Has life caused your faith to take a beating and you find yourself on shaky ground? And maybe you've heard this story a million times, but for the first time, you see Jesus a little differently. This morning, my encouragement for you is to hope again, to believe again, and to join us on this journey as we rebuild together. And remember, the center of our Christian faith isn't anything you believe. It is Jesus, and he is inviting you to a life-giving relationship with him. Maybe you're in the midst of deconstructing, deconstructing on your own. Maybe there's some hurt, some pain, or a version of Jesus that exists in your mind. Maybe you've been weighed down by rules and requirements and legalism. And today, what I'm encouraging you to do is see the empty tomb. Stone's been rolled away so you can walk in and you can see the risen and living Jesus. They're ready to welcome and receive you. So worship team, come on back.